I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, I have a fun one today, and I'm happy to announce we are back in the office, which is very exciting. And I uh, wouldn't want to share it with anyone else besides uh, a buddy of mine, someone who I respect uh, a great deal, Mike Morozov. Mike, thanks for joining me. Nice to see you, man. So, Mike, we go back a couple of years now, but and I've said... There's very few people that I'm glad are not in my industry and who I don't have to compete against, and you're one of them. And take that as a compliment. But for those who who don't know, because you know, you, you always laugh, you're the window washing guy, but let's start in those early years. I mean, you're you you come from immigrant parents. Right. Take the story from there. Sure. So I was born in Ukraine, actually, USSR back then. Moved to Israel when I was nine months old, and then moved to Canada when I was eight years old. Not an entrepreneur family whatsoever. You spoke English at that time? No, I spoke Hebrew in Israel, Russian, and then obviously went ESL in Canada, learned English in Canada, and then forgot Hebrew, switched the two languages. So, so no Hebrew. No Hebrew anymore, <laughs> just the swear words. Went to Shulik, and then that's where the whole entrepreneur journey started, because I actually never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to go become a lawyer or investment banker. I think it was, I guess, see? And I didn't even know what an investment banker was. I didn't know what an investment banker was. It's just that it was a cool thing that I wanted yeah. to wanted to become. This you would have been good at it, by the way, because it's, it's deal making. I would have. So I had an internship first year and I quit after two weeks. I was one of the only people that got an internship. I couldn't do it. I hated it so much. And like uh, one of the people that I like, I still keep in touch with my contact. I see him here and there. He always likes to brag. Oh, he used to work for me. I go, and I thank him every time. That's the reason I never work for anyone again because <laughs> of that. So my first business was actually not window cleaning. It was uh, how to catering business. I don't know if I ever even told you about this. I think you did. Yeah. So I was standing in the marketplace. That's the, call it, the main area. And they were talking about, they needed a caterer for Frost Week. I never did catering before. And I go, yeah, guys. Do you even cook yourself? No. I, I, mean, <laughs> I, know I, mean, you, I can cook a steak. Yes, I know, I know you cook a steak. I did not cook back then. Yeah. Uh, and I'm standing there, yeah, I do catering. They go, you do? I go, of course I do. He goes, uh, do you have any references? I go, of course I have references. I gave my buddies, like, did my wedding, did my corporate function, whatnot. They go, what's your company called? And I have to think about it on the spot. I go, my favorite show back then was Entourage. And I go, Entourage Entertainment. <laughs> They go, okay, give us a quote. So I literally created the website overnight. I went to Abruzzo Pizza, it was in my area, Young and Highway 7, got a quote, got the contract for the first three colleges. And how much did you mark it up? I don't remember how much I marked it up. I remember the first year I made like 30 grand in one week. And again, I was 18, it was huge oh, money for me back yeah. then. Yeah. So I went to Abruzzo, they created, I had my entourage entertainment containers, they filled it up with food, and then we delivered it. We were literally just a delivery service. However, the best price, because I mean, for whatever reason, York back then, they had it, wasn't centralized. There's absolutely zero purchasing power. Every single college did it separately. Me, on the other hand, I went to Abruzzo. I have a massive order and I negotiated them down. So I was still the most competitive guy. Just what I negotiated, that was my Delta. So that was my first college entrepreneurial route. The three colleges, the first year, the five, seven, eventually all of York. When I graduated, I was doing every single college in York. And I was making stupid, stupid money in the week. It was like over 150, 180 grand profit in one week. It was literally like almost fuck all. We literally just delivered the food. However, second year, we had the York University strike. It was the longest strike in York University history. And I started knocking on doors, selling lawn aeration. My buddy worked for a big company that did lawn aeration. I go, listen, why, are we, why don't we rent an aerator for 60 bucks and do it ourselves? Made really good money. Eventually, lawn aeration season ended. And a good friend of mine, which we're having dinner with tonight, he was doing window cleaning. So I came to him and I said, listen, I have a sales force. I have the clients. We can do window cleaning with you now. And then we'll go back to lawn aeration in the fall. Anyways, the window cleaning there didn't work out, but I continued doing the window cleaning. 
And I grew that business to a massive scale. When I was when I graduated Schulich, we we're probably doing about twenty thousand house, houses a year. Houses. Yeah. So this was all B two C. Yeah, door to door. I mean, I had a massive door to door sales team, 50, 60 guys just knocking on doors. Odds are, if you live in Toronto or GTA, we knocked on your door. And I uh, told my parents I'm going to do it full time. First, they looked at me like I'm insane. I went to Shulik to become a window cleaner. So, so you spoke about how you, how you didn't come from entrepreneurs. I don't want to get you too veered off track, but you said your parents weren't entrepreneurs. No. I mean, where did this come from? I mean, you're, you're a born entrepreneur, there's no question. I mean, where, where do you think that DNA came from if it didn't come from your parents? I think it's the circle of friends I surround myself with. To be honest with you. So the guy we're having dinner tonight is one of my best friends, Lawrence. He was an entrepreneur like his whole life. Like whoever you surround yourself with is what you become. Again, he was my first mentor, still my mentor to this day. But I think that's where he honestly came from. When you said your parents looked at you like you were crazy, were they at least supportive? Did they think that you had the it factor? Were they, or, or were they just totally clueless? I think uh, they didn't like the aspect of the window cleaning side. It's not a sexy business to go into. It's like, you know, like their family, friends, their kids are graduating, kind of going to law school, dentist, whatever the hell it is. I think that was one of the biggest issues. To be honest with you, that was one of my issues too. I remember a first year out of school, like, even though I was doing window cleaning, I was doing well, I was already dating, well, my wife now was, I was kind of iffy about it. Yeah. And, and now, you know, fast forward to today and he has a ridiculous car with a, with a, with a, window, with a window cleaner license plate. Correct. So everyone that I, I did it purposely as a fuck you to anyone that ever talks shit. That's why I have a quarter million dollar car. With window that that is plate. definitely the Russian in you. Yes. <laughs> but I got to thank my wife for that, to be honest with you. She's the one that says, listen, I don't care what you do, whether it's garbage. I wish it was garbage. But you know, like whether it's garbage or hot dogs, like as long as it brings a return. I even know how to hot dog stand. I don't know if I told you. At no. Young and Finch, I have a hot dog stand. To this day, I rent it out. But we even did hot dogs at one point. Great money, by the way, in that industry. Like, it's just a much more of an owner-operator business. But no, we, I even have a hot dog stand location this day. I don't care what the business is as long as it has a return. You, you know, it's interesting. We, I mean, you and I have spoken about the idea of hustle and hard work many, many times. And, and just to give people a, an understanding of what I mean by, by hustle, I went to Las Vegas with, with Mike, his wife, and my, and my wife as well to watch the Khabib Nurmagomedov versus Conor McGregor fight for all those who, who follow the uh, UFC. And I arrived in Vegas, and the first text I got was from Mike saying, I'll meet you at the pool, but I'm just I'm headed somewhere. And I go, where the hell are you headed? I'm like, we're on vacation here. And he sends me a picture of him, him in the elevator in full suit, and he's going to pitch uh, Caesars. Caesars to do all their windows yes. for their hotels in Vegas. And I don't even know how you got the contact. Never mind, you know, decided... So, so, you know what? You, that is such a great response. So I just said, I don't know how you got the contact. He said, I called him. I feel like most people think that the path from X to Y is harder than it actually is. And they don't actually just pick up the phone and get it done. I mean, what's your mentality as it relates to, well, you know, how do I do this? You just do it, right? So I'll tell you this. First of all, the second you think you're too good for cold calling, you're no longer an entrepreneur. I cold called to this day, to this day. Just there's more zeros to to the call, but it's still cold calling. Secondly, I can tell you right now that you're never ready for the next level. So, I, I mean, whenever I speak, like I speak at Shoe like this and uh, this and that, and people ask, how do you know, how do you get to the next level? And I see, to the truth, the truth is, you're never ready for the next level in business. If you're ready, you will be that level already, right? So, it is um, in the sense of promise first, deliver second. So, even when we got into going back to my, my business, our first major commercial contract that we got was the city of Toronto. Yeah, so let's talk about it. You transitioned yeah. from consumer, you know, window washing yes. to now, you know, B2B. So, so talk yes. about that transition. So, it was honestly like, again, I'm not a religious person, but it was literally like the stars were aligned. I'm sitting in my office and I see a tender for the city of Toronto due the next day. It's like literally nine o'clock in the evening. It's due at two o'clock or 12 o'clock the next day. Hold an all-nighter. 
We filled in the top paperwork. One of my residential window cleaners did window cleaning high rise the year before. I literally rushed to the city of Toronto, ran there literally three minutes left. And I submitted the bid. And then there's a public opening. This and that. We, were, we won. So our first major contract for high rise was the city of Toronto. And for us, that was like the called the poof moment. It created a ton of credibility because you service the city of Toronto. Mm. And after that, it was game over. I mean, it was just literally, it was a massive domino effect. You mentioned something earlier, and I don't remember the exact words you used, but it's like, Say you can do it and then deliver or promise, promise, and then first, deliver promise first and then deliver second. I take your point, but how do you bridge that gap from over-promising and under, you know, over-promising, not being able to deliver? Because I'm a big believer that a reputation takes an entire lifetime to build, but it can be run. ruined right. instantaneously. Right. So, so how do you, like, how do you catch yourself from over-promising? So when you're promising or over-promising, you need to make sure you don't have, call it like malicious intent. You're not bullshitting someone in. Like you have every single intention of making it happen. That's number one. So if I'm promising again, I know, are we ready to do it today? No, but I start doing my head. What do I need to do to actually fulfill this contract? So I'll give you an example. Right now we're in PPE, which I'm sure we'll talk about it. But uh, we had a contract where we have to produce five times more capacity than what we're currently, what we're currently capable of doing or we're capable of doing. Again, one side of it is that we're not capable of doing it. We can't do this contract. But then I literally sat down, what do we need to do to do this contract? Okay, if I double up our shifts, run an evening shift. Okay, we're almost there. And I need to increase our capacity during the day by an extra 20%. That's 10 people. I, why can't we do this? Like I, I, I always, in any type of business, whenever we open up a new market, I like to work backwards. I want to make in Vancouver, let's say half a million dollars a year net. What I need to do to make that happen and start working backwards. I need to have 12 cleaners, this, that, and so on. And again, that's how you catch yourself. If I, if I came back and said, I need 3,000 employees to make this contract, no, I'm not going to promise that. There's no way in hell I can fucking do that. But if I need 12, yeah, that's something reasonable I can do. So I think, uh, I think a lot of people make the mistake when they, they've ever pitched me a business. I remember somebody was pitching me a business on making donuts. And I said, how much do you want to make in this business? They go, I don't know. Like, I want to have a comfortable living. How much is that? Well, $300,000 a year. I think that was the answer. And we start, started extrapolating how many donuts they need to make per day. It was like something stupid. It was like 100,000 donuts a day. You're not making 100,000 donuts a day. It's not happening, right? So that's not a good business. So that's why I was like working backwards. What do I need to do and what do I need to make that happen? So even in Vancouver, like uh, as a perfect example, that was our first market outside of Toronto. I said, I want to make X amount of dollars out of this market. And then a lot of people, again, we kind of jumped into it before we were ready. We had a lot of theft, obviously, like residential window cleaners, cash business and so forth. But for me, it never slowed me down because I go, if I want to make, let's say, half a million dollars a year in this market and the other 50 grand gets stolen for theft or, or leakages, whatever it is, I don't want to say I don't care, but legitimately, I don't care. I'm making what I want. So and I think uh, a lot of people, like, they go in blind. I, I, this, if I make this, I'm fat, I'm happy. The rest going to leave. I, I love that. And I think one of the things that when I look at you, one of the things you do right is you don't overanalyze, right? You say you, you work backwards and you definitely are take smart decisions. But I feel like some people get trapped in the overanalysis and then they don't actually just get anything done. They don't actually just get started, right? Where for you, you saw that tender for City of Toronto. And you said, "Fuck it, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and put a bid in." Most people be like, "Oh no, 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 like this this bid's too big for the first one. Let's Absolutely. let's let's explore the bit, you know, the B two B space. Let's do a, a research project. Let's find out, you know, a smaller one to start with." Where it's like some people just say, "Fuck it, I'm gonna just go do it." It's a completely the wrong way of thinking. 100%. Listen, it's the right way of thinking if you want to grow at 3% a year for the next 60 years. Sure, go ahead, take it slow. I think it's completely the wrong way of thinking. And I don't know a single entrepreneur that thinks that way that's actually remotely successful. We're all in over our heads in some way or some way or shape or form. We took contracts which we weren't ready to and we improvised. That's why I always tell everybody, you need to start. Start doing something. Because I guarantee you, whatever business you start today is not going to be your business in five years, but it will, it will morph into that business. 
So let's talk about working in a team. I mean, you've now built a business that requires numerous people around you. I mean, I know when you had the window washing business, which you still have, obviously. And again, we will explore the PPE side because that is, you know, that's turned into a very big business for you. But working with a team, you know, you're a force of nature, right? Like you, you get shit done, you work your ass off. How do you balance the desire to have people around you with that kind of energy with the realization that that's really not the case? Because if they did, they'd probably be doing what you're doing and not working for you. So how do you balance those, the, the, like those things? Well, it's, again, I'm going to go back to my wife because uh, that always frustrated me. Like uh, I give a task, if I'm paying someone a lot of money, expect that task to get done as well as I can or better. And she always said, listen, if they, if they could do what you could do, they would not work for you. In fact, if you, and that's so true, anyone that I had that did it better than I can, Land they don't last it. long. They yeah. left. And I don't blame them. They left. So even in my top sales guys like that come in, I tell my wife, I'm going to get 12 to 18 months out of him. He's too ambitious. He's out. And uh, so it's, it's always the kind of like, it's a, it's a seesaw. If you want a superstar, you got to come to the realization that unless you give him equity, he's not staying. You can't have a, you can't have a shark and want him to eat salad all day. You can't. So, so let's talk about everything's going really well. For full disclosure, I sit on Mike's advisory board. So I'm, I'm acutely aware of Mike's uh, you know core business and to say shit at the fan in the window washing business would be an understatement of the year. I mean, just paint the picture of people because it's it's a really hard picture of people to I truly understand. That's how bad it was. I thought I'm literally going to sell my house. So so talk about it. Like so, one day versus the next. I don't remember what the day was. It was March 15th to March 20th. Ford comes out says all businesses are closed 11.59. But talk, talk about how many employees you had on the ground. Like, right. Just talk about where you were at oh, in that so we're business. Operating all across Canada, every single province with the exception of Quebec, close to 400 employees, window cleaners, office staff and whatnot, servicing literally tens of thousands of buildings a year. We're in March 2020. Ford comes out saying all businesses, not essential businesses, are closing at midnight. Our business went from call it doing tens of millions a year to zero overnight. It wasn't a decline of 10, 20%. Like I love that for Q's as your business declining 30%. It went to zero. Every single building across the country got kicked off site. I own an axe room business. I know, what, I know what going to zero feels like. <laughs> it was like it, it, we got kicked off every single one of our buildings, every single one, because we were considered non-essential contractors. And literally, I'm sitting there like business went to nothing. I'm driving home that night. Like uh, I spoke to my wife. I, I don't know what we're going to do. I legitimately don't know what we're going to do. Like I, we have to lay everybody off because literally there's no revenue coming in. Zero. And you weren't even collecting your receivables on top of that. Oh, because nobody's paying their bill. Even our mutual accountant called me and goes, Mike, don't pay your bills. Literally hoard your cash as long as possible. You don't know how long this will last. Don't pay anybody. And I go, you asshole. If you're calling me, you're calling all your clients. So nobody's going to be paying their bills. And people are, we still have a collections of 120, 160 days. Nobody was paying their bills. Like, again, the mentality mid-March, I'm sure we all remember. We all thought it's the end of the world. Yeah. It's the end of the world. And my contact called me. Just fluke chat. Like I'm literally thinking I'm driving home that you're going to have to sell my house called me he needed some 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 window for an atrium done because that's some opening and i'm telling you what's happening he goes he goes you idiot why don't you get into ppe like what do you mean how the hell am i gonna get into ppe he goes mike with your contacts you do all the hospitals you do all the government agencies ttc metrolinks cadillac fairview all these they need ppe but it's a big shift going from window washing but to ppe it didn't even hit me i go how the hell am i gonna do ppe like he goes mike call your chemical supplier who does your chemicals for like a window washing and the ethanol that we buy and everything Ask him if he has a sanitizer. Next day, I call. Hey, do you have a sanitizer? Go, yeah, we do. I go, okay, what's your minimum order quantity? He was like four barrels. I had no idea what was going on. I'll go out do, 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 do you even know what a barrel was? Yeah, I knew what a barrel okay. was. <laughs> I, I think it's 205 I sure, I sure as hell don't. I think of a barrel of oil. It's the same thing. Okay. I go, send them. Four, four barrels. And then we started. Literally, we had no, there's no bottles back then. I don't know if people remember the commodity of the actual plastic bottle because the supply chains were fucked. You're going to write a book on this shit at Nothing, some point. I can write a movie about this. 
nothing was available. We literally emptied out all IKEA. Our first day, we went to all the IKEAs, had soap bottles out of glass because there's no bottles available. I still have some of your glass bottles still at home. That. We took off the IKEA stickers. It literally had like a production line and we we're filling up the sanitizer. That's literally the first day. We sent us email blast, one email blast to all our customers, residential or commercial, because I still have my residential list. We finished those four bills in less than a day. I go, okay, we have something here. And part of those email blasts, I remember we cleaned one Loblaws store, one Sobe store, like literally 300 bucks. They go, hey, you have sanitizer? So Loblaws, Sobe's. And this was for their own own employees, their right? Their own employees. So, I so this- speak about that model, because it was really, I think that, that's where you got clever really early on. So I knew this whole game, is, uh, this, whole, this whole Wild West wasn't going to last a long time, because eventually the supply chains have to normalize. And everybody and their uncle today does PPE. I think I read an article because like 25, 30% of the Canadian economy now somehow in one way or the other does PPE. My printer guy is offering me PPE. Like literally everybody does it. Back then, nobody did it. And I just knew in the long run that Purell and all those, they're eventually going to come back. So I wasn't interested in building like a quick hustle to sell a couple skids and get out. Like I took the strategic approach in the beginning to do B2B because that's where my whole business right now is B2B. And that's what so, so, so just for clarity, when you sell to a, a Sobeys as an example, it's for the staff within the Correct. Sobeys, not Correct. for the shelf. Correct. I did not want to be on the shelf because, again, we jumped at this bu- uh, business literally like off the cuff, literally. Like we were never a distributor of freaking sanitizer product. So that's why, again, uh, for so and because of that, because it was going for their employees, they weren't that price sensitive because we weren't, again, exactly competitive. We're filling up the sanitizer using a pump. But I mean, obviously today it's a little bit different. We can talk about where we are today, but in the beginning it was all B2B. So we got TTC, the Metrolinks of the world, all their employee catalog. Because you, you, you had their window washing co- co- contracts. And it wasn't a hard sale. And it's so interesting because there was probably a million vendors to TTC. You happened to use that relationship to jump in early. Correct. But back then nobody had it. Today is a little bit different. Like back then nobody had sanitizer, especially food grade sanitizer. That's why you hear all these recalls today. What we quite literally did is the guy we're having dinner tonight with, he literally wrote checks for millions of dollars and we quite literally anything in ontario pretty much bought in totes literally we had totes of sanitizer everything we were selling totes of sanitizer to other bottlers so we quite literally went to our our, our, our uh, suppliers here's a million dollars you owe me now fill the order no no i can't take another no you owe me now you took the money fill my order this guy didn't pay you yet i did so give someone i mean like i actually want you to write a, a story about this one day give someone an idea of how insane things got like in terms of like the volumes and literally numbers I've never even like dreamt of seeing literally million of dollars a day. And talk about how, how, how insane the conversations were because everyone was just trying their best to get their hands on stuff, right? Like big companies were having trouble getting enough PPE for their employees. So the biggest issue wasn't selling it. Selling was easy. Like you're selling a water in a desert. The selling wasn't the hard part. The problem was getting the supply. And the problem with getting the supply is because again, Anytime there's a lot, there's a gold rush, you have scammers, you have bullshitters. That's literally what's happening. We're dealing with the scum of the earth, pretending a product that they don't. A lot, a lot of people got burnt. We didn't. A couple of times almost, but again, my spidey senses went off. But can't hustle the hustler. Can't. You can't. <laughs> I mean, like someone would call me, hey, like we have X amount of masks available. Back, back then, masks were a hot commodity. I have 100,000 masks. Well, cool, I'm on the way. I'm grabbing a draft and coming. You come in the warehouse, there's nothing there. That's literally, again, like, that was the industry. And anyone that's in the PPE business now knows exactly what it is because everyone's promising stuff they don't have. And the problem is the demand is inflated because everyone claims to have contracts they don't. So you have a federal tender that comes out, let's say, for a million boxes of gloves. A hundred people download it. And those hundred people start all claiming they have the contract because they want to get a price. So the market thinks a hundred million gloves um, boxes are needed when only one million is needed. And to this day, I get calls with the weird, the same quantity. Hey, Mike, I have a contract for... 
37,000 of this. And then 20 minutes later, hey, I will conjure 37,000 of the same numbers. And that's when you know there's a tender out. And that's why, again, the demand for PPE only got, because of all the sharks in the water, it was overinflated to what actually it was. And that's why right now, all those, the sanitizer, the masks, they all crashed. Because that demand wasn't real. So that's literally what's going on right now. If you see people selling sanitizer before six, seven dollars a bottle, now they try, they can't get rid of it for fifty cents. They can't because it was an inflated, fabricated demand. I want to get back to you know a few a few different things that aren't related to PPE, but what's what, what's a fun story that you can talk about? I know one which we you, you don't have to say. The wipes, can, yeah, I'd rather not. Okay, so we'll avoid that story. But um, talk about like some of the things you've had to do to get your hands on supply that you like that, that you thought creatively out of the box where others kind of were, were left behind. I know you went to different countries to find bottles as an example. Yeah, we flew bottles in. That's how insane it was. Nobody in their right mind flies bottles. And then you couldn't in. get pumps for the bottles. Couldn't get pumps. And we flew those in. Nobody in their right mind does this. Because the mindset people had was completely wrong. It wasn't that this is too expensive because again, all, everything we bought is way too expensive. It's not what it's too expensive, it's what you can sell it for. And a lot of people forgot that. You know, it's that's super interesting because a lot of people love to talk about value. And I think I get myself into trouble like this a lot where, where I'm like, oh, there's no value in this. But what you're saying is value shouldn't matter. It should, it should be supply and demand. The value is in whatever someone's willing to pay for it. So A, that. But two, my biggest value was we were never the cheapest guy ever. My biggest competitive advantage was I have product now. So if Cadillac Fairy calls any 500,000 masks, when can you have it? That was always the question. Well, today, I have it in stock. Whether sanitizer, mask, gloves, doesn't matter. That was their biggest competitive advantage. And they paid a premium to have it. Again, you can't, you're selling like water and there's a fire. Like people don't care what it costs. I need it today. I can get a lot cheaper for you in 60, 90 days, but people didn't care about 60, 90 days. So our biggest value add, that was our main competitive advantage that I can get it today. But even like all those articles in the media, like Pusateris, that people, like the people price gouging, I think like that's not really what happened in the market. Yes, you had some scumbags who were price gouging, but I don't think the average person on the street or at home understands what the market was. It's like think about bottle of sanitizer. We were selling like wholesaling at seventy dollars. That's how expensive it was. But your inputs were also expensive. So here's a perfect example. I had to buy that bottle for three dollars to fly it in. And what would that cost today? Ten, fifteen cents. Really? On the boat. Nobody flies in bottles, but it cost me two to three dollars to fly it in. Sanitizer, the ethanol didn't exist. There's literally no ethanol out there. So people are the only way to get ethanol is by paying a premium. Or you bring it from the States or whatever it is. That's a premium. Labor, you have to pay a premium. Why the hell would I work at a warehouse when I can get to collect SERP? So I'm not paying this guy $14 an hour. He's not going to work for 14 bucks. I got to pay him 18 bucks an hour. Boxes, literally cardboard freaking boxes didn't exist. I had to pay a premium to get boxes. So when you add all those premiums in, yeah, you're making 15, 20% margin. Nothing crazy. But the price seemed, what the hell? These guys are selling for $7, $8. I'm listening to you and I'm and I'm watching you and and what I'm thinking about as I, as I'm doing that is how you're talking about chaos but you're lighting up. There's something in you that really oh, enjoys I, it. I, I loved it once. Right, like you love that chaos. How much of of that entrepreneurial spirit do you think has to embrace the chaos? I remember my wife, like in the peak of the pandemic, I was making crazy money, but she goes like, "I haven't seen you this excited in like a very long time." Because again, keep in mind, my window clean business, I've been doing it for 11, 12 years. I got bored of it. Honestly, I got bored of it. If I get an extra building, like my lifestyle does not change whatsoever. But I think it's the fact that we did something new. I think it's two very different college, like feelings and like skill set, running a business and starting a business. Like starting literally by, like I have pictures of my phone, like filling up the sanitizer bottles. Know, I've, I've my seen Kia. the pictures, yeah. Like 
that literally got me excited. It was insane. It was just like how our business completely transformed from nothing to doing a ton, tens of tens of millions, easily 10, 20 million a month sometimes. Insane overnight because we, we literally created this baby. So, so, so let me ask you, I mean, you, you, you talk about embracing that chaos, loving the chaos, feeling excited. The reason I have... Uh, Sorry to interrupt, but chaos, people don't understand. Like, you know, I forgot who said the never let a crisis go to waste because fortunes are made in crisis. This is the crisis of our generation. So anyone that, like, it drives me absolutely nuts, I got to tell you honestly, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of uh, shit for saying this. Anyone that was sitting at home complaining that this is a war in the middle class, is going to destroy the middle class and so forth. This was the number one way. This was a massive opportunity to make incredible life-changing money for everybody. I don't call this as an unfair advantage to anybody. I call this the great equalizer. I don't care if you're worth a billion dollars or you're worth five grand. Anybody could have made sanitizer or hustled a flip a sanitizer skit. Anybody. I, mean, I mean, to put that into, into real world a real world, world example is your biggest suppliers are now your biggest customers. Correct. I mean, if that doesn't tell you. Correct. And like I, while we're sitting here, a publicly traded distributor was call, is calling me to buy product. And in the beginning, I was buying their product. And again, you know what? It's funny because people- out hustle and outmaneuver. That's what it is. It's So people ask me, why, why, why can't anyone else do this? Like I go, why can't like, you know, the glo- globals of the world, why can bundles of the world, why can't they do this? And the fact is they're too big to do this. Perfect analogy is like it's literally 90s Russia. It's the Wild West. They're too big. They have too many steps and processes. So let's say they need to buy $5 million worth of gloves. They're not just wiring the money. I'm sure it has to go through a lot of, uh, through compliance or this, that, and get it approved. If I see a good glove deal, I can, here you go. There's 5 million bucks. Fill the you order. can take that risk. So I see, like they can't move that. And the problem is because- But they have approvals. Someone needs to approve correct. this. And, about, and the product is gone. Yeah. And the product is gone. And they're too big for this industry. And that's why all the called the hustlers are the ones that have product and selling it to the big guys. And, and who, who are willing to take risk as well. Because you took risk. I know I, I got numerous phone calls from you saying, hey, I have these orders. I have to buy this product. It's like, you know, that's one thing you learn real quick in business that most entrepreneurs don't, don't understand is the, the idea of working capital. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unbelievable as you get more successful, how you need more capital, especially when you're in the game of having to buy product and have it on the shelf. Like you said, that's one of the reasons you won is because you had it there. Correct. I mean, what, what are the things you've learned about working capital besides needing it? It's not. It's never enough. Like, I it's can never tell you enough. Right now, it's never enough. Yeah. It's no. It's a double-edged sword because a lot of people in the PPE business back then were all COD. You got to pay me COD and whatnot. And because we dealt with the big boys, I call it, I have financing behind me. Like one of our advantages was because I go, I don't see Cadillac Fairview paying COD. They're not a street hustler. And I think that's one of my advantages was that I took call it the street hustler and the corporate world. I was kind of like the liaison in between. I can talk to that schmuck because he got it somehow. And I can wait the 30 days for Cadillac Ferry to pay me. I know it was an interesting time. I think the opportunity that a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon now, it's, it's too it's late, over. I think. It's, it's over. There's the industry has its set players. Everyone else is like uh, the analogy that you like to use. You know, you have a loaf of bread on a piece of, a piece of paper, get rid of the bread, you shake the paper. And what's left is literally what everyone else is going after now. Less than Chrome's. I'm going to ask you this question. I'm actually looking forward to your answer because you haven't watched my podcast. Good friend you are, huh? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so the reason that the, the podcast is called The Dealmaker's DNA is because I like to ask the question, you know, I have a gene- genetics background and I'm very fascinated by the, the nature versus uh, nurture discussion. I'm a massive believer that like you have a DNA and that's why I asked you about your parents because you say- You might disagree on this. We talked about it before. Yeah. And I'm a massive believer that it's DNA and you disagree. So talk to me about why I disagree. I'll even use myself as an example. I was was never a good salesman. I was shy. Uh, It's hard for people to believe when they hear you. Oh, like now, like I don't care. I can call Donald Trump on the line. If you give him his line, I call him right now. Like I don't care anymore. Don't give a shit. But no. But but you're saying that that was repetition. 
so I was shy in high school. Like I, I like again, I like I was nervous giving presentations. For me, what the game changer was going door to door sales. I, I say the, the game changer for, for me was uh, cold calling. It's I did cold calling too when I was uh, younger. But uh, it's like getting literally some no fuck off, go fuck yourself, and hearing that a thousand times a day. Yeah, eventually build tough skin. I mean, I, I would argue sales is probably the most important skill you can learn. Not not just to be a salesperson, just as a life skill. How to talk to every single type of personality. How you talk to men is different. How you talk to a woman. How you talk to one race is different. How you talk to another race. It's all different. And the only way I've actually learned is by actually doing it. So again, I can literally, I can place a bet with you tonight when we go for dinner. I'll drive by a house. I would bet you who lives there, what race and everything, looking at the house. Because keep in mind, I've been knocking on doors for eight years. I don't know how many doors I've knocked. I can literally tell you who lives there. It's, uh, so no, I don't, th- I think it was. I mean, but, but people don't like hearing that because everyone's equal. Okay, I'm not, fuck <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck yeah, You gotta be careful. <laughs> yeah. so, so I'm like, you know, I, I disagree with you because I think that. Then I should have been good at sales the first day. My fr- I, was, oh, I was horrible in sales the first day. See, that's hard for me, hard for me, me to believe that you were horrible the first day. I didn't sell anything. Okay, that's, that's, that's a good answer. Numbers like, uh, <laughs> no line. I did not sell anything. It was beaten, like, it was literally beaten into me. So even like now, like again, I think I'm a pretty good sales guy. And I think the number one rule of being a, a good sales guy is by not selling. Like the second they know you're a sales guy, you're fucked. Totally agree with you. And I was talking to one of my clients and they, again, it's a publicly traded distributor, billion dollar company. I sold more PPE than they did. And he goes, how the hell do you do it? I have like 80 sales guys that they don't sell as much as you do. And I go, because you don't have sales guys. You have order takers. And I gave him, gave him a story how we had, I'm not going to say which companies, but a crown corporation called me and they wanted to buy 20, 30 cases of sanitizer. And I told them, Mr. X, I'm not breaking a skid for you. Like in a jokingly way. He goes, okay, give me a skid. Like, I'm not giving you a skid for that price. Go to Walmart. He goes, okay, give me six skids. Anyways, at the end of the day, I sold him a trailer, 26 skids. If he called that publicly traded distributor, they would say, hey, I need 10 cases. No problem, sir. We'll have it delivered tomorrow. And you went from 10 cases to, to a trailer, to, to a, a $700,000 order. And how long did that take on that phone call? 10 minutes. I have fun with it though. I honestly have fun with it. It's like, how much can I push? Like I actually have, but again, like, I don't think you've heard me sell on the phone, but it's like, I don't think I'm a salesman. I'm joking around with them and whatnot. Yeah. You're trying to relate to them hundred percent. But for me, that's a high. When someone says, no, I'm not interested. And you walk away for, I hate, here's a quote. Yeah, let's do it. First of all, I hate leaving money on the table, but two, it's like, I'm an order taker. I'm not a sales guy. I like hearing Mike fuck up. I'm not interested in walking away with with an order. So for those people who are listening that are being energized by your energy, which it energizes me all the time. What are those, like, forget about being in the sales game, you know, like, you know, we're in what we do. I'm a, you know, I'm a deal maker. You're a deal maker. For those people who want to be deal makers, entrepreneurs, whatever the fuck you want to call them, what's the advice you'd give them? Like, if you were looking back at yourself when you're 18, you know, obviously I think one of the first things you said was surround yourself by good, with, with the people you want to be. I think that's incredibly good advice because I do think that you are a product of your environment. What are some of the other pieces of advice you would give them? I'll give you a few. So number one is uh, get used to big numbers. And that took me a long time. I think a lot of people don't go after a contract or a certain opportunity because they get faced by the big number. And that took me a long time, a long time. And I think even with this called PPE game, a lot of guys, because I know a lot of college street, the hustlers are selling this, they go, how the hell do you get these big orders? It's so massive. Like that's right away they say no to it because they think it's so massive. I'm not doing a $12 million order. Are you crazy? So getting used to the big number, I think it's probably what the the 1% do. How do you explain somebody that's a millionaire, loses it all, and then is a millionaire again in two years? Because he's used to those big numbers. So I think that's number one thing is getting used to those big numbers. And it takes time, but that's number one. Number two is I would say that I like to use the analogy that pretend your day is like an empty water bottle, okay? You have this much time. And then you have sand and you have rocks, okay? What I think a lot of people do is they come to the office and they focus on sand. 
What did this customer say? Uh, what proposal we have to send out and so forth? Day-to-day fires. And what's going to happen is your water bottle is full. There's no space for the rocks. You can't put the rocks in. I try to do it in reverse. Again, it doesn't always happen, but I like to call it do three main tasks in the morning. I put the rocks in first. And guess the what? big tasks. And guess what? And then at the end of the day, there's space for sand to go in between. And I think a lot of people have it in reverse. And when you do it in reverse, you can never actually grow your business because you're focusing on day-to-day bullshit, which no owner should not do. Like you should be worried, worried about tomorrow, not so much today. Okay. Number three, I know it's going to sound cliche, but, but actually being a doer, do something, stop talking, do something like the brainstorming, the business plans, the 15 page proposals, like shut the fuck up and do something. I think that's probably what most of the population is, is like their thinker. But honestly, the last thing is, is being honest with yourself. Not everyone's an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of people want to do it because it's the cool new trend. It's cool to be an entrepreneur. It's like the new rock star. But this is being having an honest conversation with yourself. Am I actually an entrepreneur? Do I have the story when I was five years old, you know, going to the high school ca- or the, the cafeteria, buying all the chips out and then selling it in the recess for more? I do. I went to the office, bought all that. That's DNA, my friend. It's not DNA. <laughs> okay, whatever. But again, if you don't have those stories, what the hell? How are you an entrepreneur? And again, anyone that says, I, I'm so good at this. I can do better than my boss. That's not an entrepreneur either. Again, my father is a perfect example. Like you say, I'm such a good salesman. I can, I, because I'm a good salesman, I'll have my own business. No, they don't go hand in hand together whatsoever. Being a good salesman is nothing about being a good business. And, you know, like I think Tony Robbins talks about, like there's a difference between an entrepreneur and an artist. Working for someone like making sweaters, I can make a better sweater than this. It's not an entrepreneur, you're an artist. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur at the end of the day, despite all this like bullshit in the, your, your main incentive needs to be profit. What you do with that profit is up to you whether you want to donate all of it, but your main incentive has to be profit. You can't donate anything unless your business is making money. And I think this one of the problems of the school system now, they're, they're, they're almost demonizing profit when that is the, per, the sole purpose of business to generate profit. Capitalism is a bad word. Yes, especially in this country. Well, Mike, that was awesome. I really appreciate it. I mean, I could speak to you for the next hour and a half, which I will at dinner. But for those who, who want to follow along in your journey, what's the best way that they can kind of keep up to date with what you're up to? I'm trying to keep a lower profile now. That's why I've not talked to you about the uh, podcast. I'm can, not can, sure. they, can they find you on LinkedIn? Yeah, they can find me. I've never, yeah. I, I don't look at it, to be honest yeah. with you. And then I know you have Instagram. I know you have uh, a few yeah, other I things. I don't even post anything. Yeah, I know. Anything. Yeah, so okay. So so basically, they just got to find, if they want to find you, they got to find a way to find you. Correct. All right, I love that. Mike, thanks very much for joining me. Really appreciate it. And until uh, next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.